Welcome to Off-Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. My guest today is poet, playwright, essayist, Alison Luderman. Alison is the author of four books of poetry and one book of personal essays. Her poems and stories have appeared in the New York Times Sunday Magazine, The Sun, Rattle, Nimrod, Salon, Prairie Schooner, and numerous other journals and anthologies. She's also written half a dozen plays, including two musicals and the lyrics for the song cycle We Are Not Afraid of the Dark with composer Sheila Ramesh. She also performed for 20 years with the Oakland-based improv troupe Wing It. She has led writing workshops all over the country, including at Omega and Esalen Institutes. She currently teaches memoir at the Writing Salon in Berkeley and poetry through Catamaran Literary Reader as well as offering private coaching and consultation. You can learn more about all things Allison on her website at allisonluderman.net. So, Allison, welcome to Off-Leash Arts. Thank you, Tanya. It's such a pleasure to be here. It is so great to have you here. When I was getting ready for this interview and looking over your bio on your website, I learned that in addition to writing poems and plays and essays, you've done so many other really interesting things. I mentioned some of them in the intro, but before we get into the creative process, I just wanted to mention how you've also done things like teaching ESL to Haitian immigrants, translating yeah. Creole, working as an HIV counselor and poet in schools for 20 years. I think this points to you being a writer who's also deeply engaged with the world. Do you feel like that impacts the kind of writing you do? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And I'm grateful for the opportunities I've had. It's great for me to get out of my study and to be <laughs> in contact with all those experiences were really rich and sometimes exhausting, but also really rich. Yeah. I mean, I think it adds that depth of the world, you know, that non-silo quality to the writing. It yeah. makes me think of long ago when I was an actor, hearing an interview with an actor who was saying, you have to wake up thinking about acting and breathe it and, and eat it <laughs> yes. and sleep it. And I was thinking, no, I don't think that's true. Like, I think the more interesting actors are not only thinking about acting, they're thinking about other things too. And I think that's yeah. true for writers as well. <laughs> There have been periods in my life where I went away from poetry and consciously tried to quit, actually, but it kept pulling me back <laughs> just when I thought I would get away. But I did, you know, want to be a person in the world. And it's, it's, there's two pulls on me. I mean, I feel very pulled between wanting to be more, you know, leaving my house, leaving my study, leaving my computer. Um, interacting with people and doing things that are more boots on the ground stuff. And then the part of me that really wants to write, write, write and, you know, immerse and dive into a big vat of poetry and not come up for air for a week. I have both sides of me. It's hard to reconcile between them. Yeah. Now, I understand you started writing poems when you were six or seven years old. I did. <laughs> what What was six-year-old Allison like, and what kind of poetry were you writing at that time? And do you still have any of it? <laughs> well, the kind of poetry I can tell you was rhymy and derivative and not very good. You know, I've taught poetry in the schools, and I have encountered many first and second and third graders who write incredible poetry, but I was not. My early stuff was like sheep and sleep. 
I was a kid that lived in books and stories. I was a kid that didn't really know how to talk to kids my own age. Like I was like a little alien from another planet, you know, being the oldest. I didn't have older brothers and sisters to kind of teach me the ways of children. So I was just a very adultified little six-year-old. I, I walked around using big words that I didn't really understand. <laughs> like a little short little adult in some ways. Um, and I very much lived in my imagination. And I was kind of bossy. I, we must say that. And um, pretend was my favorite game in the world. And I would like to be the boss of like, you know, I would have been a good director at that age. <laughs> if I could find a kid that was a little younger than me that I could boss around and direct in my plays and stuff like that, that was good. And I used to direct my younger brothers and sister in plays that I made up and, you know, make them be whatever characters. <laughs> there were some stock characters. Like. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And did, did you then perform the plays for your parents? Yeah, for and... our parents. Yeah, definitely. Our parents had to sit and watch us put on these crazy plays. Yeah. My two-year-old brother would always have to be the baby, you know, because that was about all he was capable of at that age. And my brother, who's right under me, you know, had to be like the horse or the whatever, so we could ride on his back because he's pretty big. And, you know, mm-hmm. and I was the star. I'm sure you'll be shocked to hear. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I was a slightly weird kid. <laughs> well, <laughs> most creative people were in one way or another, right? Right. I mean, yeah. So your parents were supportive of your creativity. They they liked the plays and attended the plays. And I think bemused might be the right word. <laughs> I mean, in my family, the rest of the people in my family are more practical. You know, they do real jobs that by and large help people. My parents are both teachers. Uh, my father is a college professor. My mother was a nursery school teacher for many, many years. So they had an orientation toward education and service and helping and and all that stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, poetry can help people. I think I heard in one of the one of your interviews I listened to, you were talking about people having said that your poetry was helping them through the pandemic and that that was meaningful to you. It makes me so happy to think that because I did grow up with a very strong idea that one should help people, which I don't think is a bad thing to grow up with, but it was very much inculcated, you know, more so than you should make money. It was like you should do something meaningful that helps people in the world. And and I really took that to heart, which is why I joined Vista right out of college. And that's when I was working with Haitian refugees and, and continued to work with them for years afterwards, because I kind of fell in love with the whole culture and So I did have a very strong orientation toward that. And that's why the pull between the arts, which has always pulled me really strongly, I mean, that's where I'm most alive. And then that early messaging about being of service, which I don't reject. I think that's a good message to get. Mm, Yeah. So you write poems, plays, essays, and most recently a song cycle. This might be an impossible question, but how would you describe the impulse towards these different forms? Like, Is there particular Mm. subject matter where you think, oh, well, that's a poem, that's a play, and do you know right away, or do ideas kind of first come in amorphously and then find their form? It's a great question. I don't know if I can really answer it because a lot of the process is subconscious. You know, I don't really consciously sit down and figure it out. I know that there have been times when I've worked on narrative poems and worked on them and worked on them and worked on them, and they just couldn't get them to achieve liftoff and shown them to my friend Ruth Schwartz, who's been in many ways a mentor and has read 
a lot of my stuff. And she has said, Allie, I think this wants to be an essay. You know, you're trying to make it be a poem, but it's just not working as a poem. Why don't you, it wants to be a story. Like it's too big. It's overspilling. There's too much explaining. It's too expository to really work as a poem. God knows you've tried because I've just read 10 million drafts and please don't send me any more because I'm done. But like, why don't you try this as an essay? And, and some things I've treated in multiple forms, like you read the singing essay. I've also got poems about singing. You know, I'm also going to write some songs about that for a musical project that I'm working on. So it can you know, it doesn't have to be confined to one medium. Obviously, poems are more condensed and more go right to the heart of things. And essays are when you can explain more and you get a chance to sort of stretch out and be more discursive. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And songs have to rhyme and fit in a form and be singable. So, you know, they all have their different requirements. Yeah. I can relate to that in a certain way of having started to write something as a solo show that then informed me it couldn't be and became a play for like 12 actors. <laughs> exactly. And it's your failures at one or another form, you know, like it doesn't work this way, but I'm still interested in the idea. So then you go to another, maybe it needs another form. Yeah. So I'd love to yeah. know a little bit about your writing process. I have a feeling you're not a sit at your desk certain hours every day kind of a writer. But <laughs> I'm not a, I don't do anything at certain hours every day. I don't, I don't get up at the same time. I mean, I, there are days when I do get up early and that's lovely. And then there's other days when I don't. I don't know when the hell the writing gets done, honestly. I mean, I can tell you just a few things. One is that reading poetry is really helpful to triggering me to write poetry. With poetry, I feel like it's a big conversation. And so I just, you know, sit and read for half an hour of somebody else's poems. And then I feel an urge to kind of poem back. It's like a way of conversing with not only with that poet, but with poetry in general, you know. So that helps when you want to write a poem and you don't kind of have the first line. I think reading, there are certain poets that are generative for me that make me want to write. When I'm working on a big project, like a play, then, you know, it's kind of like write the next scene, write the next scene. And I actually make these to-do lists, like I have these yellow legal pads. We buy them in bulk at Costco. We have a million of them. And I, at any given time, I've got like a dozen scattered through the house with to-do lists on them that say things like, reorganize poetry manuscript, write the love-hate song to the metronome. That's, I'm literally reading from my to-do list right now. <laughs> That's my thing on the list is to write a love-hate song to the metronome for a show that I'm working on. Uh, do Tanya interview. Um, <laughs> and then do lines of the poems also make it onto those yellow pads? Like, is it yes. like, oh, in the shower, yes. this so I've got a note here. This is my to-do list, like get the taxes, sign the taxes and whatever. And then I've got a line from... I walked into the kitchen. My husband had the radio on listening to the news. And I just caught this one line that said, no Ukrainian musician I've spoken to would say that their music would stand up to an atom bomb. I just walked in. I heard that one sentence. I walked out and I wrote the sentence down and it happens to be on my to-do list. Mm. And it's going to make it into something that I write. I don't know what. And do you do your first drafts often longhand or do you do them at the computer? I like it when I can do them longhand because I think it's nice to write without the myriad distractions that are on the computer all the time. But because the computer is so much more efficient and if I write on the computer, I don't have to transcribe it. You know, like when I write longhand, I have to transcribe it afterwards. I often do write on the computer these days. It took a long time for me to do that and confess that I do that. But 
at this point, it's just so much easier. But I do, I write my to-do list longhand. I keep a paper date book and I write morning pages in the morning. That's part of my creative process. I don't do them every day, but I do them a lot. That's the Julia Cameron artist way thing. Yeah, I mean, I used to, when I started teaching a few years ago, really, really encourage people to write longhand. And I still say, try it if you don't normally do it. But then I found myself like, if I write something I like and it's in a notebook, it's so hard to find it. <laughs> I Whereas know. if I write it on That's... the computer, all I have to do is search. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I know. And like I said, I have 10 of these going at any time, these yellow legal pads with scribbles of, you know, something that might be valuable on them. And then I have to go paging through like the whole stack of them looking for it. Yeah, it's not efficient. (laughs) Or there's things scribbled on the backs of envelopes. And my husband's been trained not to throw away any envelopes because there might be like a gem, there might be a word on there that I want. (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I still do go back and forth because I do kind of believe that it activates some different muscles when you're... um, Yeah, I think it does. I do. I think that there's something more settled in the writing, less frenetic and crazy because the internet is kind of a crazy place. There's Mm. something maybe a little deeper about the longhand. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets to some sort of kinetic memory that's almost nostalgic of all the times in my pre-computer life when I was sitting, you know, so that there's something comforting in the motion of it. I agree. And I'm grateful that I grew up in the era before computers. I mean, I remember typewriters. I remember whiteout. (laughs) Do you remember whiteout? I do. I remember taking my typescript to the copy shop and making copies of my poems all that stuff yeah. before, you know, computers and computers and everything being electronic. Yeah, I remember losing half a grade on a paper in high school for using too much whiteout. And the teacher <laughs> telling me, the teacher telling me you won't get away with this in college. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't even know if all the listeners will even know what it is. My fingers used to be like have white, you know, on the nails and all that. You could just tell that um yeah. <laughs> And I used to be able to change a typewriter ribbon back in the day, manual typewriter ribbon. Well, I know you've done a lot of improv. And one other thing I was curious about is whether things you've come up with while improvising make their way into your writing sometimes, or if those are just totally different worlds. Occasionally they do. I've been working to try and build more of a bridge between my improv brain and my other brain. It's like in interplay, which is the improv practice that I've done for decades now. The directors, Cynthia Winton Henry and Phil Porter, just kind of threw me. Cynthia said, okay, Ali, you know, you do poetry, like get up and improvise a poem. And I went, uh, what? You know, that was like over 20 years ago. And I did, I, I got up and I improvised a poem and it's like I go into a zone. I just am like trying to be a channel and let the words come through and and afterwards, I barely know what I've said. I'm not trying to be disingenuous, but it's like I'm so focused on like just having it come out. And then I don't know that I can reproduce it afterwards. It's like if somebody would film it or record it somehow. And I might remember like a line or an image or, you know, if something that I've repeated. It's hard to capture that energy again and then make it work in a poem poem I'm, mm. yeah I get a little bit like an oracle or something when I'm improvising I mean not like I'm predicting it but just you know that voice or that persona seems to be the one that works for me to be able to do that and then the poetry I write is not so much oracle poetry and actually in my 
poem poems, the ones that get published, I've usually revised them like a million times. It's funny that the two sides of me are so far apart, like that I do do improv and I love it, but that in the rest of my life, I'm like a crazy reviser. Mm. Do you feel that sort of channeling sense when you're doing the first draft or is it also just somehow a really different brain activity? Um, the first draft sometimes, but I'm often really distracted. I mean, I find my attention span, what with the internet, the stress of the world, you know, the fact that I'm doing 20 things at once all the time these days, teaching and writing and working on various projects and, you know, lots of different stuff. It's hard for me to focus and get deep enough. There's something about the sacred space, like if we're in an improv performance where I've got people around me sort of holding the space and I can't just zoom out in the middle of, you know, making a poem like I, I have to complete it because we're in a performance and all the energy is supporting me. But when I'm home, you know, I can sometimes just get part of a poem at a time, mm. achieve that level of concentration. That's not always true, but sometimes it is. Yeah. Oh, I hear you. I have concentration issues too. I think yeah. I always have, but the fact that anything that comes to you, you can immediately chase on the internet, I think has made them worse. Oh, I yeah. And I'm a horrible like chaser down rabbit hole. I love love nothing more than to go down little rabbit holes and, and the internet. I mean, yeah. YouTube. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all I have to do is be writing something and think of a quote or something and it'll be like, oh, who said that you know and I'm off and then let me find out all about that person that said that and oh look here's an interview with them and you know from 1998 you know yeah yeah well in 2020 you released a poem some girls and Mm. it was selected by Naomi Shihab Nye to appear in the Sunday New York Times which was amazing I wonder if you would read that poem for our listeners with pleasure some girls Some girls can't help it. They are lit sparklers, hot-blooded, half-naked in the depths of winter, tagging moving trains with the bright insignia of their fury. I've seen their inked torsos, falcons, swans, meteor showers, and shadowed their secret rendezvous, walking and flying all night over paths traced like veins through the deep body of the forest, where they are trying on their new wings, rising to power with a ferocious mercy not seen before in the cities of men. Having survived slander, abuse, and every kind of exile, they're swooping down even now from treetops where they were roosting, wearing robes woven of spiderwebs and pigeon feathers. They have pulled the living child out of the flames and are prepared to take charge through the coming apocalypse. I have learned that some girls are boys, some are birds, some are oases ringed with stalking lions. See, I cannot even name them, although one of them is looking out through my eyes right now. One of them is writing all this down with light-struck fingers. Mm, love that. Thank you so much. Love it. Yeah. Ferocious mercy. Tell me about the genesis of that poem. What did mm-hmm. that grow out of? Well, I've been observing the world and, you know, I'd written a poem a couple of years ago for Emma Gonzalez, who is the 
the young woman, I think they're going by X now and are identifying as non-binary, but at the time they were identifying as a girl. And one of the Parkland students who became a very vocal, like the face of the gun control movement, she was very vocal and articulate and has done is a great activist. And then of course there are people like Malala Yosefson and there's Greta Thunberg and you know all these young, young female activists. I mean they were mostly teenagers at the time. And I just saw, I felt like wow, there's this energy coming up of these young girls. And I I noticed the level of passion and they did not seem to me to be held back by some of the things that felt like they had been holding me back when I was young or other women of my generation that they seemed free of some of the gender stuff that had really tied me up at that age and trying to be pleasing and trying to be liked and trying to have, you know, boys like me and was a huge obsession for me. And um, looking back, what a waste of time, you know, and (laughs) I'm sure I'm idealizing these girls from afar because I don't live with them and I know that they have their own angst and their own issues. But I did see that they were tapping into passion and fury and real awareness of the how dire the situation is for all of us, for the earth, and really using every ounce of their youth and their energy and their brilliance in service of that. And it was inspiring to me. I feel like hopefully we're in good hands. And then I have, I'm blessed to have like two beautiful nieces and a beautiful goddaughter. And so watching them kind of blossoming and coming up they're all still teenagers and watching them kind of come into their young womanhood is really a privilege and I just wish for them more liberation than I had at their age you know yeah I mean the memory of Emma Gonzalez's speech you know we cry bs tears streaming down her face that was just so vivid Yes. And I have a poem exactly about her and about that. It struck me so hard. It's called The New Breed. I think it's really cool that you're calling that out because you hear so much of the opposite. You know, we're bemoaning the internet generation and that. And they really showed us the power of their generation that we can be in awe of rather than looking down at or complaining about, you know? Oh, yeah, I totally. Boomers complaining about young people is not uh, useful or, or accurate. I don't think it's accurate. Yeah, I just think that's wrong. And um, the poem was written before the summer of 2020 because it came out in 2020. But in Oakland, anyway, there were a lot of Black Lives Matter demonstrations that were organized like instantaneously, like overnight by young people. Uh, it was high school students who pulled together these massive demonstrations in Oakland and they did it through the power of social media and all that. And, you know, tens of thousands of people in the streets and pretty well organized and very quickly and really responsive. I mean, they're able to, of course, they're the digital generation. They're able to use these tools better, faster, more efficiently than we can. And I'm just in awe. I'm, I'm grateful. You know, that's where my hope is. Yeah. I know this poem was part of your collection in the time of great fires. I heard you speak in another interview. You were initially planning a collection of poems that had to do with the divine feminine. 
And I was Mm -hmm. curious about what that phrase meant to you. I know that when I first read the title, I thought it was referring to the California fires and then maybe the political fires of the everything that came, the Black Lives Matter, you know, in the wake of George Floyd. Right. But I'm curious how those things merge and and what you were initially envisioning. Yeah, yeah, that's so great. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with the word feminine, and I know that it's a charged and complicated word these days. But I, well, one, I grew up Jewish, and there were no female deities. You know, there was just this abstract, very male, but very, like, not nice guy, God, (laughs) (laughs) who I didn't really have any connection to. And so I really grew up with this hunger and yearning for a feminine, divine presence. And I found like the the Hindus have a great pantheon of female deities and goddesses. And I was reading books about that and trying to find ways to connect the divine and feminine together. And, And I have to say in Reconstructionist Judaism, they're doing, you know, work to try and redress some of that and bring back some of the buried feminine aspects of Judaism that that really have been there since the beginning. So there was a spiritual hunger for that. There is a just a, a hunger to see women and to see myself, I guess, also in their fullness and not just as appendages or reflections or refractions. And just on a very personal level for me to connect somehow with with the mother, you know, with the great mother of us all and, and with the mother in myself, the internal mother and to, to find a way to connect up to that. Mm. Yeah. And when you titled it in the time of great fires, were you thinking of the of the literal fires? Were you thinking of an of an internal fire or or all of the above? <laughs> all of the above. And it's really interesting that you, you touched on that word fire because my collaborator Sheila Ramesh really loves this line in one of my poems. Um I when I said I was willing to throw everything into that fire, the fire heard me and laughed. And those lines really captured her, and she made a whole song, you know, kind of based on the fire heard me and laughed. Follow me down to the depths of devotion, fire that crackles and spits with emotion. The poem was written about a, a love affair and sex, but she really took it as like passion in general and really related to it as a person who is driven by passion for music and for art and how difficult it is. You know, the fire hears you and laughs because if you say you're going to jump into the fire, the fire goes, okay, you know, and, and I will take everything. I will consume everything. That's what I do. I'm fire. I mean, I've been interested in the story of Joan of Arc for a long time. I'm terrified of fire. Let me just say that, too. As somebody who lives in California, and I live in the flats, but I have friends who live in the hills, and I spend all summer worrying about them and their house and their vulnerability with things are so dry here and stuff. But I think I'm also fascinated by it, the internal fire. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh has a poem where he is burning down this young monk's hut. <laughs> and mm. uh, do, do you know that one? It starts out, if you ask me what I would want, no. I will say I want it all. And they're both crying. And he's saying, this is what I have to do to give him his deliverance. I'm paraphrasing, but I, I, I will look for it. It's a beautiful poem. And I've worked with it in my classes and had people being like, why did he have to burn down the hut? 
And I'm like, well, I think it's a metaphor, but somehow, sometimes you have to throw it all into the fire to have new growth. Exactly. Yeah. And it is, you know, it's part of the cycle here in California, the cycle of seasons. We should have fire every year. The mega fires that we've been having are are bad, but fire is part of like what helps the redwoods seed themselves. And, you know, it, it is part of the natural cycle. It's just that it's kind of crazy because of our colonialist practices. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the song cycle that you're working on with Sheila Ramesh. It's called yeah. We Are Not Afraid of the Dark. It touches on a whole range of women's issues. Um, and I was right. curious about how that project began and also the process, because I know you involved the actors a lot in yes. coming up with the whole shape of it. And- Everything. It was the most collaborative project I've ever worked on. You know, my title is The Lyricist, but really... The content was generated from these discussions. We would have these video chat conferences every other week with the three actors. At that time, they were living in New York and Sheila and I were in Oakland. She has since moved to New York, but we'd all be on our computers anyway and talking about these different issues, you know, our mothers, reproductive choices and decisions and desires and fears street harassment, pay equity, you know, menstruation. I mean, just talking about all the things. We had generated a list that was very organized, <laughs> which mostly comes from Sheila. And these women are all like in their early 30s or mid 30s now. And I'm in my early 60s. So there was, you know, I was kind of the OG, <laughs> the older feminist. And it was so interesting to me. I felt so privileged to hear their experiences. And many of which, honestly, things have not changed as much as we would have wished. I mean, there's still quite a lot of sexual harassment. They have language for it that we didn't have 30 years ago. You know, and there's laws in place and there's the whole Me Too movement, but it's still going on, obviously. And pay equity has not been solved. (laughs) And as we know, the abortion rights to abortion are being rolled back all over the country. So uh, these issues are still really alive. Yeah. But it it was an incredible privilege for me to be part of the conversations. And then afterwards, Sheila and I would often walk around the lake and talk more And then I'd go home and I'd write a lyric and then I'd send it to her and she'd massage it and tweak it and, you know, go back and forth. And we'd share it with the other women and they would have input. So it was very, very, very collaborative. Yeah. One of the songs that particularly struck me was the one called Choice, uh, where you have three women with completely different perspectives, one desperate to get pregnant, one who's having an abortion or has had one and one who's not sure. If I have sex on a schedule and take my tempting, if I follow the rules and still no baby, inject me with hormones and exhaust all my savings, I'll ravage my body and if mine's not enough, I'll find someone to use. I just thought that was a great window into how much the fact that our bodies have the ability to make children 
comes to define us in one way or another, not entirely define us, but it's almost like we cannot, as women, get through our lives without reckoning with that question. You know, there's the social pressures and then there's the political pressures. Yes. And, and I, I thought that was yes. very moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we wanted it not to be one-sided. We wanted it to show all the different sides. Yeah, thank you. of women's bodies and the way society looks at us and defines us, your poem, Insatiable, touches on these yeah. themes. Would you yeah. read that poem for us? That's a recent poem that when I read it, I had a huge wow, like, wow. Okay, thank you. Um, insatiable, and I say it in the Spanish way, insatiable. He said it like it was a good thing, and it did sound better in Spanish insatiable, we twisted together like eels in the dampened sheets, lay together afterwards, sweating, breathless, happy. But decades later, the term haunts me with its echo of desolation. Because even in afterglow, there was still the ache, which was how I knew myself to be alive. But still, that hunger repelled unwary swimmers who ventured out beyond the buoy lines to my dark lair, and I don't blame them. It repelled me too, though I was harbor and hideout, insomniac incubator of that ancient reptile other self, sea creature of horror movie fame who ate and gorged and writhed within me, and somewhere in my gut is twisting still, thickening with age now, barnacled, monstrous. At bottom, as I said, where our small vanities once planted carelessly grow, there's the void. And now, after the thing has eaten its fill and swallowed so much love in its gaping maw, I come to reckon with history, with how people with white skin have gobbled brown bodies, continents, goods, and I know I wasn't there at the theft of the Americas and not there, not there at the auction block where bodies were bought and sold. But I'm here now, treading with unlawful feet over sacred ground, asking even the trees for solace and wisdom. Being trees, they don't refuse. They tell me I'm a child in a prison of my own making, avidity and ignorance. Let's not call it darkness because darkness is fertile. And this is a blizzard blankness, emptiness and confusion. Nothing for it then but to allow myself to be swallowed whole. And no, this greedy pale imitation of desire's sweet hurrah, this thing I long deplored in all of you, lo and behold, it's in me too. Wow, I feel like that expands into sort of a whole universe of things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, starting with... I, I got to say that poem was really squirmy to write. It was really hard to sit in my chair and write that. That was a poem where my chair, my office chair was made of hot lava and I kept bouncing up and down. Wow. Could only write a few lines at a time. Did you know when you started it 
where it was going to go at all? Or did it just totally keep, I don't know, attacking no, I you? Up feeling like, yeah, no, it took me. And I was also like, oh, ew, uh, I don't want to write about that. Uh, I don't want to write about that. And then I kept going, you know, I kept going through my don't want to. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's something that is hard about the writing process that isn't what people think is hard, right? Like it's that that things are arising that we don't want to look at. Yeah. And that are painful in some way, or like you're saying, squirmy or cringy or, uh. Yeah, it's very cringy for me. Super cringy. Mm. I mean, I feel like it's, there's a woman's sexuality and how it isn't necessarily what we've been taught it should be. And that is, you know, <laughs> yeah. perfectly good. But then there's that metaphor that creeps in, like there's hunger and then there's greed. And what other ways are we greedy? And how is our individual greed tied to collective greed? And even as people who are white and even as humans towards the planet? Yeah. All those things. Yeah. And, you know, I feel it, I feel a kinship with you because I know that we both are people who kind of want things, you know, want to get out into the world and want to make things and want to experience things and, you know, kind of go after life in a lot of ways. And many of the women that I, that are my friends are like that. We hustle too. We're hustlers and we, we go out there and do stuff and that ambition and that hunger to achieve and to have things and be things is great, but it also has a shadow side to it as well. Mm, Yeah. Well, thank you for you know. for going there and producing <laughs> it, even though it was hard. <laughs> yeah, th- thank you for receiving it, and you know, in such a profound way. And yeah, it was hard, mm. and it is hard to look at some of that stuff. Well, do you have projects you're currently working on that you're excited about and feel moved to share? Do I have projects? <laughs> it's a book <laughs> Does she have yes, projects? I, I, do. <laughs> I have projects. We'll travel. Yeah, I'm, I'm still working with uh, my collaborator, Richard Jennings. We've written like several drafts of a musical together. We've probably written like 40 songs together at this point. He's a composer. This project originally started as kind of a howl of protest against Trump. This was back in, so it tells you how long we've been working. This since like 2017. Uh, and it was witches in a forest. And, you know, we, we did several drafts of that and it's been through several names and finally, we sort of hit a dead end and we had a conversation, which was like, the witch thing is not working for us. Like we've, we've tried, <laughs> we really tried to make the witch thing work. And I'm just not a writer who constructs worlds. I have a friend who's a great fantasy writer and she writes, she just wrote a YA novel that's fantastic, but I'm not a world builder um, that way. So we scrapped that and now we're writing about some young women in a rock band that is very loosely based on the Linda Lindas who just, they're a bunch of teenagers who have that song, racist, sexist boy, kind of punk that went viral, you know, racist, sexist boy. Anyway, we're imagining them 10 years out. So it's, it's all about that. And so that's where the love, hate poem to the metronome. And, you know, it's great because I get to write about singing and music and people collaborating, which are things I really like to write about. And then I'm writing the book on another musical with Jen Coogan, who's writing the songs for something about young women who are recruited to be pharma reps for the pharmaceutical industry. So they're just recruited because they're pretty or they can flirt. And their job is to try and sell as many opiates, get doctors to overprescribe opiates. 
which is a thing that really happened, that Purdue Pharma would recruit these young, attractive people, male and female, and get them to like wine and dine doctors and get them to overprescribe their pills, which is what fueled the opioid epidemic. Um, so we're looking at one of those young women and her journey. She's fictional, but we've done a lot of research and that's fun. We're just right at the beginning. Those projects are both sort of in the beginning stages, so I don't expect them to be finished. And then I've got a bunch of poems of my own that I'm working on. And then I don't know what will happen with Sheila and my show. We had a performance in New York that was great. And we know that we want to do more stuff together, but we don't. She's really busy right now. And, and I'm not sure when or how we'll continue that or what we'll do with it. But we know that we want to. Well, I look forward to hearing about next steps for all of these. Really exciting. Thank you. Thank you so much, Allison. I love it. I love talking to you and thank you for your depth. Oh, thank you. And thank you for listening to Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. Off Leash Arts theme music and editing help for this episode were provided by Asher Whitkin. Music from the song cycle, We Are Not Afraid of the Dark, is by Sheila Ramesh and lyrics by Alison Luderman, sung by Gabriela Gamache, Julia Geisler, and Ashley Burroughs. You can find us online at offleashearts.com. Until next time, take good care and stay off leash. Today.